Hello! <laughs> Welcome to Semblade Postcard, episode number 21. Uh, thank you everyone already for tuning in. This time we will be talking about how innovation creates new opportunities. Welcome! This show will be dedicated to innovation uh, with our guests Seem uh, uh, Lepisk uh, from SAB Bank, who is the innovation manager. Hello, pleasure to be here. And uh, Joe Ray from uh, IDEA Group, who is the digital innovation manager. Hi, everyone. Don't forget to comment and share what you hear on this podcast using uh, hashtag just seven blaze. So let's get to the introduction. Um, see, what's your story? Why do you do what you do? So I've been always uh, curious about technology and what it can do for people. So as a late 90s, I started to write some uh, code as a developer or freelancer on started to do some websites and uh, sell them for some businesses as well. That grew more like an uh, <clears throat> e-commerce uh, business as well. I set up some of my own online stores and helped other companies to set it up. I uh, went to IT college to study more the things and then I got to a software integration firm where I uh, first just worked as an intern and then uh, gradually grew to consultant and project manager and business development manager where we where we were building eventually rather big uh, system integration works for like banks, hospitals, air traffic control uh, systems and so on. So that was really exciting stuff to, to, to work on systems that uh, save lives and people and so on. But uh, I missed something like... Uh, more direct contact with uh, with people. So uh, the next step was uh, essentially a digital agency. And we had a team in Tallinn and team in London. And we grew that business. And uh, I was I was running the agency in Tallinn. And then we sold the agency to, uh, to another global uh, advertising agency. And we, we continued with some exciting projects like uh, social media campaigns to Coca-Cola, share a Coke, one of the most successful campaigns ever and so on. So when you get to do like really exciting uh, marketing work as well, then then again comes to uh, someday it comes to question what's what's the next step and then uh, startups had become popular in Estonia and, and everywhere in the world. So I <clears throat> tried uh, on some own companies, some other companies. Uh, I set up uh, like a small accelerator uh, running companies, early stage companies through that and then learned how that works with uh, with all the engine investing, venture capital investing, so on. And then figured out, that, again, what should be the next step, where, where to implement this knowledge, passion for technology, for people, for systems, and, and now the understanding of startups as well. So what corporates nowadays lack a lot is that knowledge, a good marketing knowledge, and, and what more even like to bring this magic word innovations, that how do bring products and services faster to market. So you have to learn from startups. And uh, if you have understandings how, how startups quickly learn and fail and, and learn again and fail again and, and eventually grow into something big, then, then this is something that big companies would want to uh, use and, and learn and implement. So and that's what I'm doing. Yes. And today you do this in SAB, right? Yes. Uh, Joao, uh, tell us your story. In, um, the, in, in, in the key sense of why you are doing what you do. 
Okay, so my story is a little bit different, I guess, from from Seam in some points, but not that different because uh, I think I also always had a passion for technology, and uh, I was involved in that when I was still in Portugal. I've been away from Portugal for the past ten years. Um, one of the reasons why I left Portugal and I came ended up in Estonia was because I ended up in Portugal working for the government sector, um, you know, a big public institution. And I kind of didn't like the feeling of going to work and feeling that people were not passionate for their jobs. Like they were okay with the way things were done and they were not really willing to innovate, to change. And when I first got into and I first got here in Estonia, um, I immediately got a sense, and you know, this was 10 years ago, that people were very much like, if you had a new idea and you wanted to try it, people were very encouraging. They were like very open-minded and they would tell you, go for it, try it, see if it works. So this this fear of failure was not built in yet. Whereas in Portugal, I, I often had the feeling that people were trying to tell you, you know, it's been done before, someone has tried, there's no point in innovating. And that's one of the reasons why I loved Estonia. So when I first came here, uh, I was actually studying in, uh, in TTU, and then I started working um, in a company which now we would call a startup, but back then we didn't call startups, uh, where we build the, the business from the ground up, uh, sold that, uh, eventually grew, and I ended up working for a, a marketing uh, advertising agency, uh, leading the digital team, and then now I'm working for the the, the group level in Idea Group, uh, working as a head of digital innovation, which is just, I think, a fancy title for uh, finding ways of engaging with uh, with our clients and finding sweet spots that are not yet covered in the market, like trying to understand from the client point of view, from the customer point of view, how can we make these products uh, better? And just like Sim mentioned, I think in the corporate level, there's a lot of opportunities here for innovation to uh, to take foot. In short, please describe uh, how you use uh, social media in your everyday life. So very, very briefly for me, I, I know I, I use Facebook uh, quite often. I, I share a lot of uh, articles and, and stuff that I see on Facebook. Um, I think a couple of other social media tools for me are not so much on the consumption side or the discovery side, but more on the publishing side. So Twitter for me, I just use to publish stuff that I see online. Same thing with LinkedIn. I mostly use to publish stuff that I that I that I read. I usually read stuff either on uh, Flipboard, so I use Flipboard to get my news, or uh, Hacker News, or uh, I don't know one of those channels, and then I share it on social media. But Facebook, I would stay. I would say is the one that I kind of interact the most uh, from consuming and, and publishing. I would say the same list of channels, especially love the Flipboard as well. And uh, I appreciate LinkedIn a lot because it somehow has good algorithms to suggest you like relevant job work related uh, contents. On Facebook, I normally only follow certain people uh, uh, to to be, uh, I, I don't read regular media at all. So uh, on Facebook, I follow some people to, to be aware if something big is happening that I should be aware of. I think Facebook has become like also the discovery type channel where you actually get a lot of uh, information there. A, lo- a lot of events are on Facebook. Definitely, of yeah, it's one yeah, of the best yeah. uh, sources for where to go and and to get you get a lot of invitations. And then I try to keep up with what's happening with uh, you know Instagram, Snapchat, other you know sort of uh, social medias, um, but more from a you know i need to follow what's going on so i can advise our clients on where to go next so in terms of that you also have a tinder account uh <laughs> tinder uh what's the other one grinder <laughs> <laughs> <you> name it 
And and what about hourly? How much? Uh, how many hours a day do you use uh, social media? I don't want to know. I don't want to. <laughs> okay. I want to do that calculation. <laughs> That's a but, good uh, answer. I think I think Facebook is on pretty much uh, all the time. I think also, I wouldn't call it social media, although it is part of it. But uh, messaging, I think, uh, is basically always on. Um, so, eight hours. I don't know. Ten hours. You know. You, you know. Do, you know. It's 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 always on. Yeah. In terms of seeing new innovative platforms, say Snapchat and so on, would you say that uh, Facebook will decline? That's a very bold uh, statement. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. Uh, I think you know Snapchat is having a, an IPO this year, and they, uh, you know, they turned down uh, Facebook a couple of mm -hmm. uh, some time ago, and everybody thought that they were crazy because they turned down. I think it was three billion, and now they're IPOing. I think for expecting to get 25. So that just shows you, you know, how crazy it is. Uh, I I don't use Snapchat. I think the way that most people use, I just check what's going on there. But the other day, I was on the bus and I saw this twenty-something-year-old uh, uh, using Snapchat to not to chat with someone, but she was looking at the news on Snapchat. So she was using Snapchat to browse news. And for me, that's a, that's a pattern, that's a behavior that I, I don't have, right? Mm -hmm. And it kind of made me realize the potential of this platform that people are using it to consume news, just like we do with Facebook today. So I think there's a whole generation who's growing up with Snapchat because Facebook is not cool anymore because their parents are there or whatever the reason. And so I, I still think Snapchat has a has a shot. One day uh, someone was asking me, how does Snapchat make money? So I was, I, I didn't have a good answer for that. Probably of sponsored content? Sponsored content, content. they will have uh, ads, they will have you know specially made uh, API for publishing ads on the on the platform. Um, it will be a bit different from the others, so you have to kind of tailor make them mm -hmm. for uh, Snapchat, which makes it, you know, media agencies don't like that because they're used to the formats, right? They're used to just having one format fits all. So that's going to be an issue, but uh, they will find they will find the revenue uh, stream. I don't think it's going to I don't think it's going to be the same as Twitter. I think Twitter um, didn't find the revenue stream early enough. They were too busy with user acquisition, and that that shows now. But Snapchat, I think, is going to find the revenue stream. So, guys, how would you define innovation? How would you explain a five-year-old uh, or your grandmother? Uh, what is innovation? I think for five-year-old, uh, it's uh, the new. It's a time when you play with cars, and uh, maybe if you uh, change or alter your cars, uh, toys somehow different that become attractive to your friends so you sort of add more value that essentially your customers are going to pay more for uh, for what you did or then then that's one form of of innovation if you test something new and by adding some sort of new value yeah i think you know the way that the way that you frame the question is very interesting because on the one hand we've we've had this idea in the agency of doing some concept where we have to explain what we do to our grandmothers. Because nowadays explaining what you do to your grandmother is very challenging, right? You know, it's not it's no longer manufacturing, it's no longer, you know, we work with ideas and we work with computers. So explaining your grandmother what you do, I think is one of the hardest things to do uh, today if you're working in, the, in this industry. But if I would have to explain it to a five-year-old, uh, for me that's easy because I actually have a five-year-old. So if I talk to my kid about what do I do and I, I, I tell her about uh, inventions, the other day we were talking about inventions with her, and, and I put it in very similar terms the way that Sim did it, which is look at your toys and how would you make them better? So how would you make this 
dollhouse or how would you make this car uh, better? How would you improve it? And then, and then she actually had ideas. She told me, oh, I would do this and I would do that. You know, I'd make the car, you know, the windows would open or something that she saw somewhere else. And the same thing with the dolls. So finding ways of making something work better. And then funny enough, I asked her, uh, what about the Legos? How would you make the Legos uh, better? And she didn't have an answer for that. She just said, we need to build more. We need to build, make more stuff with the Legos. Mm-hmm. So I think Legos is like the ultimate, you know, engineered product. It's like very hard to innovate. Yeah. How and why does innovation happen? And where does it happen? I think it starts, I think it starts with, a, with a pain. You know, it starts with, a, you have to start with a problem. So innovation is not born out of a vacuum. You know, I don't think some people are very driven just for the fact of innovating, you know, being creative and trying to do things differently, but there has to be a pain that they're solving. So I think typically where and how does it happen? You need to start with a question, you know, what's broken? You know, what are we trying to fix here? What What's the pain point? What's the problem? And then build on that and try to find the creative solution that is not there before or is a combination of, you know, previous solutions and, and, and try to build on that. Yeah, with that. With experience from startups, I would also second to the idea that first try to understand if there's a problem to solve. Of course, you can just experiment with different stuff, think that you have a solution and try to uh, find if there's a problem for that solution, which happens rather often as well. And and that could be just experimenting, but without the proper system. And But if you have, in order to call something really an innovation, then that should have like monetization way sooner or later as well that someone would really see that as a value in, in long-term, making someone's life better ultimately. But and I, th- you- I think that's the difference, like if you just invent something with mm-hmm. no intention to monetize, or if you want to actually bring a product to market and you would call that an innovation. So definitely finding the pain point that someone is willing to pay for. I yeah, think it makes, makes sense. It's really important to make the difference yeah. between just inventing and, and really innovating, trying to... Mm, trying to invent something is not necessarily innovating something. Innovation is with with a purpose to reach some sort of higher value. But you can be an inventor without innovating and you can be innovator also without inventing if you copy someone else's thing and, and add it to your thing or just make it a little bit somehow better without without inventing anything new. Can I uh, draw a line between marketing and innovation? Marketing equals innovation? No, I don't think no? I don't think marketing <laughs> equals innovation in, in any way. I mean they're they're trying to solve two different problems. I think marketing is a lot about you know either bringing a product to market or bringing awareness to a product that already exists in the market. And innovation is about improving uh, either a product or a service or or coming up with new products or services. They go very well hand in hand. You know, they they combine and, and complement each other. But I would make a distinction between the two. I don't think I don't think we're at this stage where, you know, marketing equals innovation. There's a lot of hype currently mm-hmm. in marketing with regards to innovation, but I don't think they're anywhere close to being the same thing. I, I think there is some overlap in, in marketing. Uh, you want to provide some innovative ways how to market your products, and this just these are just. Uh, giving new types of channels to your customers and so on new uh, and it's marketing has been always about some creative work which can include you know, innovation as well but it's uh what maybe often often marketing things and just campaigns are not that scalable if if you're like really innovating something really clever you would want it to make more scalable that you can 
you make it once and then you sell it for 100 customers and then 1,000 and 100,000 and so on that you don't have to build from scratch and, all the time. And I think for people like us, uh, who are anyway in this in this field of innovation, um, you know, we want marketing to be more innovative and we want the two of them to kind of overlap. But there's a lot of marketing that's super effective and it's super boring and there's no innovation there, right? So, you know, price discount communication is probably the most boring thing you could ever do, but it still works, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, there's there's... I'll give you an example of something that's a bit more, a little bit more digital. Uh, email marketing. Still one of the most effective ways of reaching your audience. Open rates, 25%. Compare that with Facebook, organic reach, 6%, whatever it is, right? Uh, I wouldn't say email marketing is boring, but it's definitely not as sexy as some of the other stuff that we can do online. But it's it's very effective, right? So if you have a client, if I have a client... I'm obviously going to suggest to them to do email marketing compared to Facebook. So if I tell them to Facebook, you know, my my number one goal whenever I have a client coming to Facebook is get the client email. Get that information out of your fans so that you can reach them outside of Facebook. Because otherwise you're spending money and we saw this in Estonia some years ago. You were people were spending money to attract huge numbers of followers. And we had clients, you know, would ask us, you know, make me a campaign so I can get 5,000 followers. Like, why? Oh, because my competitor my competitor has 3,000, so we need to have more than them. Okay, <laughs> why? Why do you need that? And so we were following these likes and likes and likes when the real value was getting these people so you can reach them outside of Facebook. Otherwise, you're paying Facebook once for the followers, and then you're paying them again to reach the audience. And that's just, you know, that's throwing money away. That's giving money to Facebook, which I don't have a problem with because I have Facebook stock, so that's good for me, but uh, I don't advise that to my clients. So just to give you an example of a boring email marketing, a boring, very not innovative type of uh, technology, but very effective. Mm-hmm. So uh, what are the stages of innovation and uh, how is uh, innovation in the product or service created? Well, in there are a couple of ways how, how to look that, but I think the core thing is the build, measure, learn loop that you build something, you test it on customers, measure, and you learn from that, and then you build again a better version of that. It's one of the core core things for your for your product development. If you look at from more like zoom out a little bit, uh, then you would look it on a portfolio level. For example, in 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 SB Bank, we have what we call our employee lab. So it's an internal accelerators where where people come in, pitch their ideas. First they uh, first they might be on their own, just uh, with their idea, and their first goal, in first stage, is to get at least two more people on the team to establish a team. Uh, so we have a one-day hackathon for these people with the ideas. They come in, present their ideas. We have mentors, and uh, and their first goal is to get an, at least three people in their team. And then to work more with their ideas, go out, validate with customers if if their if their idea really has some problem to solve, then they come back, then they have a better idea what the problem is, what the solution is, if they have a customer, and uh, and after that they present that solution in in maybe a three minute pitch to a board level to get the permission to move on to the next stage, that to work a little bit on the idea. So uh, the next stage, 
normally in, in our case is a six week program where, where again we have more in-depth sessions on defining the problem again going out and validating with more customers then you go out you have two hours and come back with at least 50 customer responses out of which like for instance 60 percent have to be really excited about the pro problem or, or and your solution and, and see some kind of product market fit in that sense that see that your product can be actually a solution to their uh, some kind of problems and then again you work around uh, uh, on the validation and, and forming another pitch and then uh, you move go ahead and present to even higher board uh, half of the teams uh, will not get uh, to the next stage but half of the teams will get so uh, they get extra six weeks to work on that so so it's a bit by bit and always like if the team or idea is not uh, if the team is not so performing so well with that idea uh, it appears that it, it the problem is not big enough then we just skip that idea and say that thank you well done I hope you had a good learning experience and, and so on. But the teams who get to new stage and new stage, another one, these uh, eventually will, will be plugged into like product development process or, or maybe even a separate spin out uh, thing. And then we spin it back in as a new service. So it sh should be always a staged approach with a certain time constraints, certain objectives, uh, normally a panel of experts is a good idea to judge if if the idea has been making enough progress or not if, if that should be still worked on or or skipped and uh, let those good people do work on something else they can come back with a new idea for new new okay. cycle so this is a uh, the basic uh, model you're using in SB and probably uh, lots of uh Incubators uh, also use a similar approach. Yeah, a lot of accelerators and incubators use a really similar staged approach. When you have some goals to reach, you have to talk to customers, come back with results, prove that really your customers are really willing either to pay money or, so or invest their time in, in your idea. I think this is, I mean, you know, what Sim was talking about, the, the approach they have at SCB is very similar to other accelerators. Um, I think it, it is that for a reason, you know, it has proven to work. Um, what I would say, like on the stages, definitely what's critical is finding the right problem. And the the earlier you can find the right problem, the better you will be at solving it. That's why it's so important to go out and ask people, you know, is this something that you face? Is this something that potentially we could find a solution? And that's where, um, you know, the notion of having this MVP, the minimum viable product, is so important. Because, you know, there, there's three selling moments. One is when you're selling the idea. And I mean, that's easy. Like, you know, you can sell ideas. I can sell ideas. So that's, that's easy. You can just go, you go to someone, you say, you know, do you have a problem? Because I can make you a problem and then I'll, I'll sell you the solution, right? In your head. Because I'll put the solution in your head and then you'll, you'll think that this is a solution to your problem. And then fine, then you can give me money and I'll solve it. That's easy to sell. The only reason why I have the MVP is because you don't believe me. You don't think that I'm technically capable or somehow capable of executing on this idea. So then I show you with a very basic uh, workable product that indeed I can find a way to solve this problem for you. Because I guarantee you that if you go out and you sell people just on the MVP, it's very tough because the MVP is going to do half of the stuff that it's supposed to do, right? 
So that's why selling on the ID is easy. Selling on the, on the MVP is a little bit harder. And then hopefully, if you have the final product, that's easy. Mm-hmm. But in order to get to the final product, you need to understand, am I working on the right problem? And going to customers and asking them, that's, that's essential. So, dear listeners, if you plan on innovating uh, something, then please don't do it at home alone, right? Absolutely. That's the worst, that's the worst way to innovate. Yeah. Yeah. Steve Blank has said well that no fantasy business plan will ever survive a contact with an actual customer. So, no matter what you build in your home, if you go to sell it to your real customers, then it will always change anyway. And it, it's tough. It, it, it's really tough to put yourself out there and you know ask people, you know, is this going to solve it? When when most of them had worked on this on a hackathon for a day or two days. And actually, I've seen the difference working on hackathons over the weekend versus working on hackathons during the week. And the ones that you work during the week are a lot more productive. Hmm. The reason they're productive is that during the week I can actually pick up the phone and talk to potential customers. During the weekend, I can't do that. If we're working on a hackathon idea over the weekend, my customers are not reachable, right? So doing hackathons during the week, which hopefully, you know, if you're doing a corporate innovation plan, you can do, um, works a lot better than, you know, these hackathons that, Jan, you're used to and I'm used to going uh, over the weekend. No one picks up the phone. So getting your customers is really tough. Can there be a bad innovation? I mean, I think when it comes to innovation... The obvious answer is yes, there can be a bad innovation, but I think it's more like there's a lot of question about timing, mm-hmm. right? So whether the market is ready for this idea, whether um, you know the audience is the right audience, um, we've seen cases of bad innovation. But let me let me give an example of an idea that was a little bit ahead of time. Um, back in I think 2010, whenever it was, uh, Facebook was you know getting big, this whole social media. MySpace, I think, was still around. I'm not really sure. But they started a, a, a browser, which was called Flock, I think. Which was Who started? Some guys. Okay, yeah. Some guys started a browser called Flock. And the idea of Flock, I think it was based on Firefox, was that you would log in with your Facebook and I think your Google or something, and you would always be logged in, right? So you'd always be logged into your Facebook while browsing the internet. It didn't fly. People were not ready for that. People thought that this was an intrusion of privacy, yada, 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 you know, targeting. People didn't want that. A second browser came along, I think it was called Rockmelt. Uh, it was later acquired by Yahoo. And the same principle, you know, pictures, social sharing, all of this, it was ahead of time. If you think today, you're basically doing that. Any site you go to, you're definitely already logged into Facebook. So these features, which at the time were built as innovation, as a separate browser, didn't fly. And nowadays, this is the default behavior. Whenever you're browsing the internet, you're always logged into Facebook. So sites get a lot of information about you because you're logged into Facebook. But back then, it was ahead of time. Timing is definitely one thing, but I think innovation by definition has a lot of to do with failures. And uh, to succeed, you normally have to fail. And, and when you look at the startups, most of them fail as well. And uh, but they normally know it in the beginning that there's a l- big risk for failure. If you invest in ten companies, uh, then uh, nine out of ten normally will will not be successful. Half will die like within first six or sixteen months, and another half will maybe survive. So it's normal to look at your innovation idea portfolio in a way that one or two out of ten 
may, may be successful uh, to an extent. So you have to do a lot of experiments and, and embrace the failure that it's expected. Oh, great, I failed. I got the feedback from customer that it's not needed. Great, I don't waste my time on that anymore. So I move on with new idea. So and, and and failing failing fast, mm-hmm. right? Yes, failing as fast as possible. Yes. When to stop? When to stop innovating? <laughs> Never stop. <laughs> no, I don't think I don't think you know stopping innovation is not is not a thing. Uh, before I get to that, I just want to say something about the failure, which is in the startup world we understand the concept of failure and we kind of embrace it. We're okay with failing. We're okay with failing fast because we learn from our mistakes and we can move on to the next one. You know, different societies have different attitudes towards failure. In the U.S., it's very normal. Here in Estonia, kind of okay. Um, you know, if you go to Southern Europe, failing is definitely more of a taboo, you know. But what I wanted to say is that even though that culture exists in the startup world, if you go to the corporate world, it's still very tricky because your peers, your colleagues are going to judge you on the failure, Right. And you don't want to, you don't want your colleagues to look at you as a failure, and therefore that's why sometimes these corporate innovation programs are like you know big corporates trying to do startups. It's very tricky because people don't want to take the risk, even though on the face of it, it, it is safer because it's a big corporation, so it should be safer. People should be m- more willing to take risks, but people have egos and office dynamics and whatever. So they are afraid to take the risk because they don't want us to be seen as failures internally. So a lot about doing this corporate innovation has to do with changing the culture in order that, you know, these big corporates accept failure in-house. Because we're used to doing this uh, yearly or quarterly uh, reviews where we go through, you know, so what what have you done, you know? And you don't want to have failures there, right? So that becomes tricky. And I'm I'm completely for having a sort of like yearly review plan where we ask, so what have you failed at this year? And that becomes a metric of how much are you trying to succeed or how much are you trying to innovate uh, within the company? So what new project did you try this year? And, you know, how many did how many did fail? And what did you learn from it? That should be a metric of like corporate uh, innovation. What about this failure? I remember when we were also developing uh, uh, Facebook apps, um, a lot and always when a new function uh, came along uh, with Facebook API we started telling all our clients yeah there's a cool feature let's do uh, a new type of app and sometimes I was I was so sure that this will be a success but and the client paid for it but then ended up being a th- uh, failure in terms of either uh, I in terms also that uh, maybe the technology wasn't uh, uh, people were not yet, yet used to the new function or something like this so very often, the, like I had to explain my failures to the client uh, after. So sure, and I mean, you know, this this happens a lot. You know, we we go to a client with a inno- innovative idea, and we 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 believe in the idea, and we think it's going to work. But the clients need to go hand in hand with you and understand that you know you're trying something new. You know, you're not playing it safe. You're you're you want to make something new and cool. And you want to do it because you believe that it's going to work. It's going to be effective. It's going to find an audience that wasn't there before. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but uh, I don't like using clients as guinea pigs. Uh, so we always try to do our own testing before we, we try something out for a client mm-hmm. uh, to make sure that the, the technology will work. 
Oh, just add, it's a good point to ask from your agency or freelancer that how have you validated this idea somehow? It's okay, it might be a great idea, but before I invest my money into it, have you somehow validated that with any of your customers as well? Or you think it's just another great idea, let's try it. It's for customer, okay, I take the risk, you haven't validated it, okay, I pay for that and, it, and I accept it might not bring me the results I expect. We, we take the risk uh, together in, in that sense. But it's very it's very tricky to get a client, and you know the client says, "So what's what's the outcome going to be? You know, w- you know how many, you know what's the what's result? Promise, be, yeah. yeah, what's the promise?" And I, I find that very very challenging because if you're trying something new, um, you can't make those kinds of promises. I'll just give you two examples of campaigns we did, which I th- I th- I thought were uh, quite innovative from the point of view of um, using sort of guerrilla marketing using old technology. You were talking about uh, Tinder. So what we did was that for uh, work in Estonia, we created a campaign inside of Tinder where we created profiles uh, with, uh, uh, you know, male and female profiles. Uh, and we targeted those for a tech conference in Helsinki. So the guys go to the conference and they're swiping and then they see a match and it says the best match for your job or whatever it is, is in Estonia. And, you know, it's it's kind of using Tinder, uh, playing their own game and using it in a, a different way, innovative way. And we got a lot of matches. We got a lot of matches. We got a lot of positive feedback. Uh, eventually, we got banned from the platform because it's against the terms and conditions. But it worked. You know, it got the attention that we wanted. Next year, we followed that up with a campaign also for the same client in Airbnb. So what do we do? We put job ads inside of Airbnb. We, we take a picture of the desk and we say, you know, this is the desk where you will be. And it looks like, a, you know, an Airbnb room, but it's actually a job ad. And again, innovative way of using an existing tool to kind of, you know, guerrilla market uh, this. And that, again, huge success um, from a PR angle, from actual people, uh, you know, sending CVs. So different ways of, of uh, reaching an audience. What attributes should an innovative uh, product or service have? to actually have an impact on the market? What attributes should it have, yeah? yeah. I, I would set the 10, 10x ambition. So it's 10 times, not 10%, but 10 times, like 1,000%. Uh, so either either you bring a new solution, product or service that is uh, 10 times cheaper than existing ones, only then it's worth to, to compete because it's, if it's 10% che- cheaper, no one will buy. If you offer something for 10 times cheaper price, then, then it becomes attractive and and might have a good potential or on the other hand if you are 10 times more productive with your uh, 10 times much better than than any of your closest competitors then it's worth trying out the new thing so so i would set the 10x ambition when you look at the companies nowadays they uh, they have a growth ambition maybe five percent 10 15 maybe uh, on a yearly basis if you if you look at the stable companies but if you look at the startups they always have like 10x ambition every year they want to grow 10 times more 10 times more customers maybe even on a monthly basis like if you get 100 then you get 1000 third month you have to have 10 1000 already so you you set the much higher ambition and and look what kind of answers and and solutions come to you in that case if you set the right ambition i think that's a that's obviously a very ambitious goal uh, but we have to be careful because setting those types of goals might create expectations then then if they're not met you would judge 
you would judge the effort as a failure. And and that's 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 tricky, right? So I, I, I like the boldness. I like the fact that, you know, 10x makes uh, makes a lot of sense from that point of view, from empowering people. But if we're then going to judge the success of it on the 10x, then it's uh, it's it's quite ambitious. It's uh, it's it's tricky. Yeah, you have to be true to your to your team, not to not to destroy that, and that's what uh, often can be a challenge in, in in smaller startups companies as well. That you're really ambitious and then you burn out, but you really have to balance balance between right ambition and your new and your capability to deliver as well. I think before Jan, you were asking about when to stop innovation, mm-hmm. right? Um, so m- my answer is like never. Like innovation is like you know a shark. If you stop swimming, you'll you'll die. So you need to keep innovating. But there's a lot of money to be made using old business models. There's a lot of money to be made by not innovating. So not everyone needs to innovate. I mean, my feeling is that obviously everyone has to innovate. But if you're a big, large corporate, there's room to not innovate. Startups have to innovate because they have nothing. They need to be 10x. Right? They they have nothing, so they need to they they have this drive. If you're a big corporation, your cash cow is not going to come for innovation. It's going to come from something that's in the market right now and delivers value. A lot of corporates are innovating because they feel the pressure. They feel the pressure coming from startups eating up, you know, at the at the sides, and then they feel like, oh, shit, you know, we got to do something because these guys are coming. I mean, fintech, all of these sectors, they're feeling the pressure, so they feel like. We got to do something. We got to start moving because if we don't move, these guys are going to take over. They are not making money yet from the innovations that they're working on now. They're still making money off the cash cows, which is, you know, the proven business model. But every single company right now needs to have, if you're a certain size, needs to have what I call an R&D department. Something that's working on the vision of where is this going five years from now? And that's the innovation center or the whatever you want to call it. But it's looking five years from now. Where is the revenue going to come? Because right now the revenue is coming from the old business model. But five years from now, if I'm not working on it yet, the startups are going to start eating it away at it. Or the competition. And this then becomes the question of, you know, do you lead or do you follow? Because if you're a corporate, you know, you can be the first one to come to the market with a new product and then you get the edge. But then again, you know, you can just see what the others are doing and then copy that and hope that you're not too late. Like uh, like in Estonia with uh, uh, grocery shopping online, right? So Maxima does it, uh, Selver does it, uh, Prisma kind of does it. You need to go there and pick up. And uh, uh, Coop, Coop uh, does it as well. Um, so did, did they just decide to, you know, let's all do it at once? No, they were like, you know, one started doing it and then the others felt like, okay, we need to get in on the action because if we don't, we're going to fall behind. And this is, you know, this is like the leader versus follower type of uh, discussion. Yeah, and comes comes back with the timing issue as well. And and if you're really first one to get uh, through that door, you might get shut uh, and and uh, others will learn from that and, uh, and, and those who follow might be often more successful. Um, because normally, if you look, none of the, if you're completely unique in the world, then then it's quite small chance that you will uh, succeed. Because most likely, you will do some kind of failure. So others will really quickly copy and and see where the trends are and implement that. There was a funny case recently of uh, um, 
a lot of a lot of companies are using Kickstarter or uh, uh, GoFundMe or all these crowdfunding platforms for their new products. And uh, apparently, it's a thing now where they put the product up there. They hope to raise the money to actually build it. And before the campaign is over, there's some Chinese company already coming with a product to the market, mm-hmm. right? So then you have to you have to understand, you know, who benefits from from this innovation and how quickly can you get it to market? Because if you're not quick enough and the product is really good, someone's going to take the idea and they're going to run run with it. Yeah, but on, on the other hand, on on local markets, there's often room to adapt from uh, global ideas. There are even accelerators like that in, for instance, in Germany, who Germany, yeah. who take the ideas from US and then implement the same thing in in Germany or somewhere else in around the world. Just they copy someone's idea and make it local and mm-hmm. make it work. Those guys are everywhere now. Yeah. They, they they completely expanded worldwide. Yeah. Can you name some uh, examples of really innovative products that uh, have ten times uh, disrupted the market uh, in the last year? I think for banking, it's uh, there. If you Google unbundling a bank, like taking a bank to a pieces, then uh, you see a pictures where a regular bank is taken into hundred different pieces where there are disruptive startups are all eating your pie. Uh, some are more successful, some less. Like either if it's a peer-to-peer lending or quicker money transfers, whatnot. Unbundling a bank is something that really illustrates how how bank is being taken into into small pieces where well like global startups uh, attack a very specific niche of customers and very specific problem to solve and then fix it and then what often happens of course these companies will also like eventually they want to sell their company to someone to to become why to build the business because to sell the business uh, one day and then their idea also is to become successful enough so one of the big banks would eventually by that and and in SAB we also have our like venture capital arm where we invest uh, so to say small numbers starting from half million uh, euros to to companies uh, who who look promising to us either as a strategic partnership or just as a financial investments and and we make uh, screen that sort of fintech startups uh, around Europe to to invest in them either to work together or just earn I would actually, I would challenge that uh, from the point of view of if you're unbundling banking, and of course banking is is huge, right? So there's a lot of opportunity there for, like you said, if you unbundle it and you cut it into pieces, you find niches where you might be better. I mean, transfer-wise, classic example, a very specific product that has to do with something that banking used to do, and nobody really cared because, you know, banking is doing it and my bank does it and I don't have to worry about it. But transfer-wise came and, they, you know, very niche product and they managed to very early uh, on grab that uh, that segment but i don't think their success is going to be dictated by how quickly will they get acquired by another bank i think in the in the in the case of transferwise i think their success is going to be dictated by how quickly can they start to integrate other unbundled products from a bank so that they start to you know grow to the size of another bank right because for transferwise to be acquired by another bank um, I, I would call that a failure for them, because that that's that's going back to the old school uh, old school model, right? But if Transferwise uh, starts collaborating with uh, Number Twenty Six and they start collaborating with whatever insurance provider, actually Number Twenty Six is a very good example because in the banking space they started off with a niche product as well. Now they're you know going on to other products, they're going into loans, they're going into investment, 
and you know quickly growing to the size of uh, what banking uh, used to do. So in that specific field, I would, uh, I, I think you know competing head to head with uh, with large banks would be more of a, a goal than than getting acquired. When's the right time to start taking advantages of new product or services? Well, I think we we covered that a little bit when we talked about the timing and how important timing is for for innovation. So, uh, in that sense, you know, if you're too early to the market, yeah, you might be you might be shut down, or your your idea might not have an audience yet. Uh, so you spent a lot of resources working on something that is too early, and this is where client validation, customer validation is so important. Um, on the other hand, if you're too late, you know you're not seeing, you're not being seen as a innovative company, and then uh, it's uh, you're too late to the party. You've lost market share. Uh, it gets harder to to enter that market. So there, there's two sides to this. Okay. Uh, the other day I was in uh, Rimi uh, doing my regular shoppings, and uh, in the past I mostly go to the automate the uh, checkout checkout casa. Yeah. So. Uh, it's quite comfortable, but lately I've been uh, I've been missing the human touch. Human touch, and I've been going back. I have to wait in line longer, but I, st- I still want to be there with the human. Uh, so, can there be too much innovation? I don't think I don't think that's a question of innovation. That's more a question of like the usage of technology and like you know what does that mean for human contact or human intimacy. Uh, I don't think that's a question of of uh, innovation. I think. Innovation doesn't have to mean a loss of intimacy or human connection, right? I think innovation is just about looking at a process, finding, in the case of Remy and the checkout, looking at a process, finding the inefficiencies in this process and trying to make it more efficient. And that's where the automated uh, checkout uh, comes in. If you look at a product like uh, Amazon Go that Amazon uh, announced, uh, I think in the beginning of, uh, or in, in the end of last year, uh, where they're going to have stores where you just walk in, you register your phone, your Amazon account is there, and you just grab your stuff and you walk out. You don't even have to scan anything. They have pressure sensors, they have machine learning, they have all kinds of sensors everywhere. That's a store where you don't even talk to anyone, right? But the process has become very, very efficient because then you don't have to waste time you know, doing that. Um, it's. I don't think it's a byproduct of innovation that... We lose the human touch. Innovation is just worried about doing things better. And if we feel like we need more human touches, then I'm pretty sure, you know, Remy can always have a security guy that you can talk to if you feel lonely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it also relates very well to artificial intelligence. Uh, that's becoming to be more and more like chatbots. You don't understand if you really talk to a human or, or a robot or even uh, like voice robots voice can be very much like a human as well and and then pictures now as well become more more and more human and uh, the emotions so we introduced uh, essentially a robot employee in in our sweden office as well and uh, robot learns from actual humans and and if if she uh, cannot uh, help customer then then she will say that oh I, I haven't learned that from my human colleagues yet so I will uh, direct you to a human colleague of mine to to help you with that specific issue so that is becoming more and more of our everyday life as well it's it's not so far as it used to be maybe 10 years it used to be more utopical but now it's just <clears throat> at a touch of our own hands and and I think it's very 
upcoming trend. It's very tough thing for everyone to to copy. It's it's not easy because our artificial intelligence good one takes takes a lot of technical knowledge to to build. But uh, this is definitely one upcoming thing that regular work is being replaced by robots of different kind. Room cleaning robot is not something unique or or too innovative nowadays anymore. But imagine that like. Ten years ago, so it's uh, it's like a robot, like any another robot. And soon, uh, yes, in in Rimi, basically, the, in in grocery store, you will have a machine working with you. And and if that machine will have a human right touch of human element to that, it might give you that uh, good sense of feeling as well. Because if the client uh, executive uh, sales clerk has a bad day maybe you get bad service but from robot you always get like a nice service and mm-hmm. smile and everything with, with a nice tone of voice so it's it's a tricky robots robots are coming and, and there are a bunch of uh, companies and teams working on that robots would not get too powerful though they would remain in uh, in, in in control okay. let me just give you an example you know robots taking over and this client service if you go to a store Let's say let's say you go to um, a hardware store like Bauhof, and most of the people they have in the stores right now, I have a feeling that we go to them if we can't find something. We go to them because we don't know where something is located. This is a kind of task that's boring, monotonous, repetitive, and I'm pretty sure they're not happy doing that job because these guys are experts. You know, they know how to how things work. So if we can replace this type of interaction with something that makes them feel like they're not wasting their time and we can find our way without having to wait for someone uh, to be available, that problem, solving that problem is innovation. Then the next step is the people who are actually there at the store can focus their time and energy solving actual problems that the client has. Like, I have this problem with my toilet. How do I fix it? Which things do I need? Those are the kinds of problems that the customer service representatives at Bauhof want to solve, not telling people where to find the hammers and the and the boards and whatever, mm-hmm. right? So this is good innovation. This is innovation that will actually make their jobs more meaningful and will make clients' lives uh, better. I think the biggest fear of Elon Musk was that uh, the AI will become real. Yeah, Elon Musk, Stephen Hawking, a lot of them have expressed concerns about uh, you know too much uh, AI, and you know. I think the the fears are are fine. I, you know, we're not there yet. It's going to be a long time. Uh, what I do see is that with more automation and with more uh, robots, either artificial intelligence, so like you know, computer based or actually physical robots, people will. And this is a topic for a different discussion, but people will have more free time. Um, hopefully, that means that they will dedicate their time for something else. But it also presents an opportunity from the point of view of what are the professions in the future? Like, what is what is going to be next? And my gut feeling is that entertainment is going to be a big thing because the more free time we have, we fill that with entertainment. You see today guys making money out of YouTube. Five years ago, 10 years ago, this was not a thing. It was not possible. And going forwards, I guarantee you, this is going to be a thing. I would not ask, I would not encourage my, my, my kids to go study law because law is a set of rules, most of it. That's something that can be very easily codified and turned into an algorithm or an AI. So law is not going to be a thing. But entertainment, on the other hand, that's I think that's going to be a thing. P- 
People are going to be spending more time online with their devices, looking at stuff. So if you can keep them engaged, time is going to be the, the commodity that we're going to be uh, trying to attract. And getting people's attention is going to be important for brands, for whatever it is. And therefore, entertainment, I think, is uh, has a big uh, leap forward. Don't mistake entertainment with art. Those are two different things. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I guess you get the point. Mm-hmm. So uh, this will be the last question for you guys. How to look for opportunities uh, in innovative products and services? So how to find innovation? What is the most important thing? For me, for me, it's always about system. As I said in the beginning, it's about systems making people and process more effective. And so one of the ways how we... We as a bank want to help our customers as well. Joao mentioned that we are building the innovation center. So we create a whole physical space close to 500 square meters in, in Tallinn city center where we will have a program for entrepreneurs so they could take their business to the next level. And and we help to innovate together with external experts to for their businesses. So it's like a accelerator slash incubator for regular companies. There's a lot of uh accelerators and incubators for startups but if you have a regular business selling like physical goods in your local area or or want to really take your clever things to do more of an export market and, and if you dream of setting up uh, or or becoming a 10x company one day that will grow 10 times in in next couple of years so so this is something that we as a bank want to help our customers in 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 innovation center with a systematical approach for their businesses. So I would answer this in very practical terms. So at uh, Idea Group, what we try to do is uh, keep our eyes on on you know keep our ears on the ground, see what's what's happening locally, and we're trying to connect uh, startups with some of our clients. So we invite startups to come over. We listen to their product, see if there's clients from our portfolio that might benefit from what this startup is doing, and then try to you know find ways to collaborate. So this is one. The other way is that you can run a, you can call it an innovation workshop, an innovation sprint, whatever, uh, where you bring people from the outside and you work with them to find new ways of innovating inside the company. And why is it easier to bring someone from the outside? Because doing it in-house, it's very hard to change people's mindsets. And when I was talking about the fear of failure in corporates, this is one of the reasons. If you bring someone from the outside, it's typically easier. There's a, I think there's an old joke that says that, um, you know, innovation, like changing a, changing a, corp- a corporation or the way they work is a little bit like shifting or moving a graveyard. You should not expect a lot of help from the inside. You know, it needs kind of an outside input to, uh, to move it. Mm. And I think this is where, uh, you know, innovation workshops can be, can be a thing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Sim. Thank you, Joao. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, today we had our guests uh, Sim Lepisk and Joao Ray on our podcast who talked about the innovation and opportunities it can create. You can find Sim. Twitter Twitter is the easiest for, for anyone anyone who knows me business-wise. Of course, connect me on LinkedIn. You can try to follow some of my stuff. I, I On Facebook as well, I, I use it mostly for business purposes because there's so many contacts. But uh Twitter and and LinkedIn following Sim Lepisk. Okay, and Joao, what channels would you like to promote? People can follow me on uh, Twitter. It's uh, J-C-R-E-I, J-C-Ray. Um, they can also look me up on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Joao Ray. 
And uh, they used to be able to look me up on YouTube, but uh, Google kicked me out of YouTube okay. uh, for another episode. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Seven Blades Podcast, episode 21. Thank you, Hendrik Weyer, for the sound quality. Thank you, Restaurant Korsten, for providing us with water uh, each and every episode. And uh, check out our previous episode on sevenplace.com website. You can find us on iTunes, on our YouTube channel, uh, sevenplace social, or soundcloud.com slash sevenplace social. Thank you for listening and stay social. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Good job. Yeah.